Hi, and welcome back to Activists of Tech, the Responsible Tech Podcast. Tech is a male-dominated field. Being a woman or gender minority in tech is hard, and the main culture of tech makes it difficult to enter the field if you're not male and to stay there. For instance, you've probably heard of the Grace Hopper celebration that aims to drive more women into a field where, well, they are underrepresented. Well, this year, a lot of men overrun this job fair to look for jobs at an event designed for women who face a whole set of obstacles to enter and stay in the tech field. The topic of women, gender minorities, and being at the intersection of several marginalized communities in a male-dominated industry and the social impacts that are engendered by this gender imbalance need to be addressed. I had the pleasure to interview Dr. Nakima Steffelbauer, who holds a master's and a PhD from Harvard University, as well as a bachelor's from Brown University, and has been working in tech for over a decade, where she focuses on strategies for positive impact of AI and is also an advocate for women and minorities in tech. Dr. Steffelbauer is the founder of the nonprofit Loop, whose mission is to change the face of EU-based tech companies. Loop offers classes and workshops for German women, refugees, and newcomers in Berlin. Their curriculum is developed and delivered by women with professional programming expertise and teaches women from a wide range of backgrounds how the tech industry really works and how to successfully navigate it. I hope you enjoy this episode. Dr. Steffelbauer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So what's your story? Uh, so I would say I am a dreamer and a teacher and a would-be diplomat who ended up in an area where there's actually a huge need for listeners and teachers and diplomats, or rather peacemakers. I work as an executive in the tech arm of a major German insurer. I run a nonprofit computer programming school for refugee, image, immigrant, and resident women in Germany. Um, I work as a business angel investor and advisor to software development startups in Europe. Um, and I'm part of the Decolonizing Digital Rights Initiative, which aims to amplify and democratize the need for more inclusive digital policies and to highlight the wide range of digital rights infringements that algorithms or AI systems can have, especially on low income, on immigrant, on queer people and people of color, among other marginalized groups. That's amazing. How did you end up working in tech? Oh, that's pretty easy. Um, <laughs> I, I'm an immigrant's kid, uh, and now I'm an immigrant um, in my own right. Uh, I was very expensively educated, and I was always a scholarship kid who kind of left academia when there was very little interest in hiring multilingual people like myself uh, to work on model, modern Middle East issues in the United States. So. I basically spent 10 years listening to people, studying languages, negotiating with people, and learning how to communicate really, really complex circumstances about North Africa and the Middle East, and ultimately migration issues and black market trade to Western audiences. So all of that was leading me in the direction of diplomacy. And then the internet happened and I had major student loans that needed to be repaid and I discovered an e-learning startup that was trying to convert all kinds of academic and corporate training materials into web-based training modules. So I pretty much started there. Can you tell us about what you studied? Uh, because I think the story is pretty interesting. I studied 
um, semiotics in undergrad, and I thought I was going to be uh, a historian. And somewhere along the line, I ended up taking a language class. And actually, I started off with a na nations and nationalism class. And that got me started on the road to investigating different kinds of nationalisms all over the world, um, which eventually led me to Tunisia, where I had a scholarship to study Arabic for the summer. And I ended up, you know, a full three months in Tunisia studying both dialectical Arabic and classical Arabic and learning a whole lot of French that I thought I knew but didn't actually. Um, and I came back thoroughly focused on the modern Middle East and the challenges that were that I observed when I was in Tunis. And that turned into my major. I, I did an independent major that I created at the time because there was no modern Middle East studies uh, at my university at that point. Um, and then I ended up uh, taking a year off after university, um, studying in Egypt for the year. So I moved there. I was studying, again, dialectical Egyptian Arabic, as well as classical Arabic, media Arabic, and just getting a sense of what life was like in Cairo at that point. Um, and then I went back to grad school and I did my, my master's and my PhD in modern Middle East history. I'm always super impressed when you check about your background, like for real. Um, <laughs> Follow your passion. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, it's definitely something that has served me well as luck would have it uh, throughout my, my career. So can you tell us about the nonprofit that you started, Frauenloop, and what made you start this organization? So I started Frauenloop in response to the fact that I was super isolated when I first moved to Germany. I was working in the tech industry for quite some time before my move. And once I moved to Berlin, I was pretty much only working with young programmers who were all men, really. Um, and I was working with business stakeholders who were mostly older, but they were also kind of pale, male, stale uh, <laughs> uh, to describe them. And then in 2015 and 2016, um, the influx of so many people from the Middle East who were seeking refuge in Germany meant there was a lot of interest in the tech sector in Berlin in helping these people to integrate um, and especially to integrate into the tech sector, which had a reputation for being an industry where you were always learning and where a lot of the rules about formalized training didn't apply as strongly as being able to demonstrate that you know you knew how to develop code, you knew how to maintain a code base. So I was one of the people who was initially volunteering, and then I saw the need for a program that kind of really demystified or you know pulled back the curtain on what programmers were working on and how they did their jobs, and especially on introducing women from different backgrounds to German women and vice versa. Uh, all under the umbrella of bringing more women into the technical side of the tech industry. What I found then and what I find now, seven years later, is that especially with regard to the German skepticism and mistrust of people who were seeking asylum um, at the start of that refugee crisis, uh, but also based on the responses that I got from many of the newcomers who said they basically no chance to come into contact with Germans, you know, I thought that uh, Frauenloop would be a different way to address this issue by getting women from these different backgrounds who are all pursuing more learning, more training in the technical um, field to kind of work together 
you know, in a secondary language for everyone. So no intrinsic advantages that anybody would have and to on the way to improving their chances of being qualified to work in the tech industry, they would get an understanding, kind of an automatic understanding of, you know, who these women coming from different parts of the world were and what they might have in common and how they might, you know, more easily communicate with each other. I'm assuming that this skepticism you refer to is not only German, right? Um, speaking today, you know, after we see the results of the German and the Dutch elections with um, the alternative for Deutschland, which is the AFD, and Geert Wilders uh, in the Netherlands party winning even more support um, by doing things like promising to end foreign aid and Dutch nation dual nationality for Dutch people, um, reducing dramatically the number of foreign students. It's clear from those kinds of results that um, it's not only Germans that need more integration with people from around the world. So you build this organization as a as a newcomer in in Germany, right? Yes, I, I mean I was an immigrant. I, I moved my whole family here, and my perspective was that you know if it was difficult for me with all my degrees and all my experience mm, yeah. working in the tech industry, how much could I make it easier? How much could I you know reveal about the best ways and the most effective trajectories to entering and maintaining an interesting role and an upward trajectory in the tech industry for other immigrants, whatever their background, if they were interested and committed to learning and developing um, their programming skills. So how did you, can you tell us about your journey building Loop and how was it first received when you put it out there? I think that I did not start the organization with an interest in building a platform. I started it with an interest in actually reaching women who would otherwise not have any social or professional ties to the tech industry. So, you know, initially I was I was running another program that was focused on training asylum seekers in how basic web development processes worked. Um, so I built off of that by kind of going to the places where I would be more likely to meet women in various stages of immigrating to Germany, um, language centers, um, job centers. And, you know, I had by that time, I, I think I'd been here by uh, 2016 for three years, three and a half years. So I had a pretty good network of women anyway, who were um, immigrants from Poland, from Romania, from different parts of Europe, primarily. And so I just advertised it everywhere I could, you know, reached out to all of the people I knew working in HR and recruitment, and just started to build on the interest that I always observed around people who weren't directly connected to technology, to learn about it, to understand what are the jobs, what do the jobs involve, are there more than just programmer jobs? Does a programmer job mean necessarily web development or are there other areas? Um, and so I had a lot of workshops that I hosted where I would just kind of invite women from various different backgrounds in, leverage all the contacts I had at different tech companies and startups in Berlin, and then just, um, you know, really try to take the pulse of the audience. You know, what did they want to learn about? Was it more interesting to hear what do web developers do or did they want to understand data analysis? Did anybody know what quality testing of software or test automation of software was about? If not, how do I get um, some experts in who are themselves women 
um, whether or not they are immigrant women, and get that conversation going so that more than anything, that women from various different backgrounds who had not previously considered themselves to be technical could investigate whether this might be a direction they'd like to train in and they'd like to, you know, become qualified in uh, because the the whole idea was that very often I was finding women were just being discouraged from even beginning to study technology related subjects because the narrative socially is very much that this is something for men and this is something where men have some intrinsic advantage the industry is highly concentrated amongst younger men and this is as an alternative to that this is a way of i think demystifying and also making some of the jobs and some of the tasks and some of the skills that are necessary less magical and you know <laughs> mystical sounding and and also giving women a little bit of a push to ask the right questions and be curious about what the technology field involves because many of them were very quick to say well i thought you needed to be a mathematician in order to program anything or work in the technology field at all and that's still very widespread that misconception in in germany at least how do you demystify this narrative the easiest way to demystify it is to break down what web developers actually do what front-end web development involves what kinds of tools are used um, what kinds of sequencing is necessary to develop an application, a script, uh, a series of applications or scripts or different tools that may be used for different tasks as opposed to just one programming language. Even from our introductory web development course, you learn three different programming languages and you get comfortable in the first 12 weeks in working with different plugins and different applications that are essentially libraries that make your life easier as a developer um, that are freely available online. You also get familiar with using uh, the GitHub remote repository for your code. And I think that the biggest thing that helps women to discover, oh, I was under a misconception about what it was necessary to, to program for the web or to program you know, for another area, because I just didn't know and I didn't have any exposure and the people who are doing this work don't usually spend a lot of time explaining, <laughs> you know, what it is exactly that they do or how it is that they get answers to the questions that they can't immediately answer. And as part of our program, you know, the women very quickly learn that no one has all the answers. Everybody's Googling. Most of these frameworks and many of the tools are new or relatively new. And you can and should feel empowered to look for answers online because that's what the people who are employed to do this are also doing. You know, it's very few encyclopedic uh, developers who never consult the web for any answer uh, to any problem they encounter. So I think all of those things, the fact that you realize, oh, we're not just learning to use JavaScript, for instance, and maybe one framework, and that's all we need to be able to code. No, there's more. It's not only about understanding how to write code. You also have to understand um, the test process and test-driven development, and you also have to understand agile development and writing in a modular way and using object-oriented concepts in your code development. 
all of these things tend to be very quickly understandable to women who are nervous about, you know, the math <laughs> that's going to come at some point. And unless they are specifically working on big data, data science initiatives that require a certain degree of familiarity with logistic regression and other concepts from, you know, algebra, algebra two, that ask that you understand and you apply fairly advanced math concepts usually doesn't come. And I think that's a big aha moment for a lot of women because they realize, oh, this is complicated and there's a lot to learn, but it's not using the parts of my brain that I was afraid it would be using in many cases. So I think that's uh, a big part of the demystification. I think at Franoop, you go beyond that. It's not only classes to learn how to code, right? I think the big distinguishing factor about Fraun Loop is that rather than just say, we're going to train you in computer programming and you're going to learn all of these skills and you're going to practice, 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 and then you will go and you will succeed in the tech industry is not the approach that we've taken. We know that as women, specifically women of color, immigrant women, older women, younger women, whatever the case may be, women have different challenges And it's one thing to possess and be able to demonstrate logical programming skills for interacting with a computer, but that's usually not what getting employed in the tech sector is about. It's about the ability to work with people and to develop products for people, especially people who are different from you. And we teach a lot of advocacy skills for that reason, advocating for your ideas when you're on a team of developers and you need to explain why your idea might be a good one to pursue advocacy for yourself, especially since many women are not taught to do that effectively. And it's important to be able to advocate for, you know, a fair salary, which is still an issue across many countries in the world, especially in Germany. And those kinds of advocacy skills serve most of the women who we work with very well, because in many cases, they have not had the experience of being you know, a single, a double, a triple minority where, you know, they might be one of very few or the only women on the programming team. They may be applying for a promotion or initial initial position, and they're only working with men. Um, they may be working only with men from a different culture, uh, different background than theirs. They may be dealing with all manner of expectations that um, differ from what is normal for them in terms of how they express themselves. Things as simple as advocating clearly for what you believe rather than modifying every statement with I think and I, I'm not sure. And these are the kinds of things that unfortunately still matter. And these are the kinds of things we found are extremely helpful. We continually hear from our graduates who go on and work in tech full time that they've used all of the tools and all of the tips that they learned in our workshops that are Uh, focused on how to advocate for themselves in professional situations later on in their careers. Do you think there is an underlying issue responsible for the lack of diversity in tech spaces? I know there's an underlying issue. I think <laughs> it's well known. Um, I immediately think of the study that uh, there's an awesome study that was done um, years ago about how salaries, industry salaries tend to decrease in general once women enter the, enter the field in higher numbers. And so that's proven true in graphic design. That's proven to be true in architecture and in other industries. The reverse is also true. Um, and that study that I'm thinking of, I believe it was in The New Yorker ages ago, but it proved that also when men enter a field, 
salaries tend to increase. And that I think is a pretty accurate description of what happened in the computing industry, which used to be a field for detail-oriented women who were called you know, human calculators back in the days of the 50s, the 60s, the hidden figures era. And once men started to really have computer games and you know, desktop Ataris and Commodore gaming systems marketed to uh, male children instead of all children, you started to see more and more men who were entering computer engineering and you know the software industry. And as that happened and the salaries increased, you saw fewer and fewer women going into those fields of study because they were overpopulated by men. And that intimidated and scared off a lot of the women who would otherwise be pursuing those degrees. And then the industry was an even greater concentration of men. And that's one of the most easily proven trends that you can see when you look at the salaries of what, you know, women were being paid in the computing industry when it was majority women who were doing the computing uh, versus what the average salary in the tech industry has been since roughly the 1980s when it has increasingly had an over concentration of men. So I think there's definitely an underlying issue, which is ultimately hostility to women, but it's, it's also true that um, the ways that work is valued and compensated when it is perceived as more of a male profession uh, is completely different than the way that um, work is perceived and compensated when women are shown to be successful and present in larger numbers. Wow. I, I honestly had no clue about this study. You just blew my mind. It really makes a lot of sense. Yeah, none of this stuff. I mean, I wish it was. I wish we were dealing with different challenges. And it's the same challenges. <laughs> it's the same studies. It's the same yeah. problems. Do you have examples of the impacts uh, these issues have on women who want to enter this field? Yeah, lots of examples. I mean, I have what I thought was a really shocking example, given how frequently women are told by mostly by the men who are uh, usually in charge of the hiring usually in charge of the technical teams, at least in uh, the Berlin tech sector. And there's so frequently tech managers who say, you know, women are not technical or they'd never have enough technical skills or they're not insufficiently analytic or whatever the, the failing may be that they're so quick to identify. Um, I've had in total, I think, three of my graduates who have all been focused on data science. So in general, because of the requirement that you be more familiar with algebraic functions and you have a greater facility for using mathematical functions when you're working with big data as a data science um, specialist, we tend to get a lot of academic refugees who are <laughs> just fed up. They've done PhDs in physics. They've done PhDs in astrophysics. They've done you know, all of the science that they can do in German universities, and they're tired of being, you know, the minority who's being treated poorly as a result of not only being women, but in many cases being foreigners coming from Iran, coming from other countries outside of Europe. And in three cases I can think of, I've had students like that who've finished successful PhDs in the STEM sciences and then switched over to data science specialties at Fraunhoop. Um, I've had them come back to me after job interviews and tell me that they were told by the men interviewing them that they were too technical, which 
usually perplexes them because yeah. they're not sure what kind of a, you know, what's wrong now, you know, what, how can I, you know, work against this kind of label or what can I do when that happens? And that is something that, again, I think just underscores the fact that usually it's not really when you're applying for work and you're navigating the job search process, it's never really about only are you qualified? Do you have the skills? Can you demonstrate those? It's also very often about whether or not the person interviewing you feels like you're really too too young, too foreign, or too female. Yeah. What do you think is the role of regulation in the tech space, and especially alongside the decolonization of digital rights movement, to, to positively impact uh, women in this field? To positively impact women, I think that's only a piece of the puzzle. I think that We have a really great opportunity to balance what's happening in the U.S., which is a pretty much laissez-faire approach where the tech companies are just trusted to kind of do their best and regulate themselves and create the kinds of innovation that, quote unquote, everyone benefits from. But if we just look at the latest events of the past weekend with OpenAI and Sam Altman and, you know, the board and are they nonprofit for the benefit of humanity or are they for profit for the benefit of their shareholders? And all of the kerfuffle that came and went. And now we've got not only the ejection of the two women who were on the OpenAI board yeah. in favor of two white men, one of whom was known for his tenure at Harvard saying that women were intrinsically less skilled and biologically incompatible with the sciences or something to that effect. Um, we've got them on the board now. So it's entirely white men. It's entirely people who are in lockstep with the genius of uh, the, the CEO and absolutely no interest whatsoever, not pressure in the form of board level pressure, not any other kind of pressure. This is a private company, so they can pretty much do what they want. Not a lot of interest in diversity or diversifying or doing any of the things that I think we would want to see happen in a company that has global reach, global impact, and you know a very diverse slate of customers everywhere trying to leverage their products. So what does this example tell us about diversity and how the main tech culture impacts uh, marginalized people? This tells us a whole lot about what is valued in that ecosystem, in that part of the world, and amongst those supposedly liberal, more like libertarian circles where decisions are being made about what kind of technologies, what kinds of labor, what kinds of exploitation are acceptable in the service of whose vision for the future. Really not very surprising if you are familiar with who is yeah. behind a lot of these um, software and algorithmic innovations And if you've been keeping up with the kinds of failures and flaws in those technologies that are rarely called out by these men who are running the show, it's almost always women, queer people, people of color. Yeah. These are the kinds of people who are experiencing suboptimal outcomes from the technology. And that's been the case for a very long time. So I think it's, it's really interesting to see that as we see more and more uh, more varied harms that are being reported on, that are being investigated around how does the algorithmic infrastructure work, where does the big data compute actually extract a, a toll, um, 
you know, we see that it's, again, not even consulting the people who are most likely to be harmed by the technology, by the effects of the technology on the environment. It's always the same extremely limited group of very privileged men. And it's just not surprising that at this point, the nonprofit, supposedly nonprofit aspirations of the original OpenAI have pretty much been thrown in the bin in favor of purely capitalistic ob objectives of, you know, a bunch of men who've already made their views clear about, <laughs> about the, the primacy of themselves and the less qualified, less interesting, less relevant concerns of the rest of society. So I think when it comes to regulation, we have an opportunity in the EU that has not really been tapped in the US where we can really create some standards regarding data, uh, data privacy, transparency, and fairness. And I think that the EU recognizes that, I hope they recognize that allowing tech companies to self-regulate rarely works. It rarely works in the interest of anyone beyond the shareholders. Um, it rarely works in the interest of even the long-term viability of the company because most of these companies are venture funded and, and that's a very short-term view necessarily uh, and profits focused rather than overall impact focused view. So at a smaller scale, um, since you know private companies can have their own policies, do you think community and grassroots organizations could be a stronger answer than regulations? I think you, you don't have one without the other. I've been really impressed in Europe with the uh, noib.eu, that's N-O-Y-B.eu, uh, which stands for none of your business.eu organization, which is a grassroots organization that's been advocating for years now to stem the reach of big tech companies from the U.S. in infringing on European residents' rights and data and has been placing lawsuit after lawsuit um, against big tech companies typically in the e in the US but also in the EU for selling and mining their customers data for profit without any mindfulness of the guidelines of the uh, general data protection regulation and without any consideration for how public audiences would respond if they understood what was happening with their data in most tech companies operations and advertising strategies so I think there's definitely a community empowerment aspect that has been overlooked or hasn't been, I think, exploited to its fullest extent. I would love to see more empowerment information, you know, demystification sessions where we're just explaining to the public, you know, this is how your data is used when you navigate online from website to website. You know, these are the kinds of data that are utilized to create profiles of you that follow you wherever you go on the web. And when you're talking about um, data privacy, data protections, these things have been augmented to a small degree by specialist tools that are open source, like the Chicago uh, University of Chicago Sand Lab that has the Fox uh, data poisoning application that has the Glaze uh, data poisoning mask for creators for illustrators and for the artists work but these are 
just a part of the, the puzzle and having all the community empowerment events that you want is not going to be enough on its own to prevent big tech from overstepping the boundaries of not just privacy, but also human rights and security. These are This is the reason why we need to have regulations that stop tech companies, startup companies, any company that finds itself, you know, in a position to let's say, scrape your private, personally identifiable information off of the web and then put it into their large language model or their generative AI model and generate as many pornographic um, images of real people who are unaware that their faces are being attached to this kind of material. That's why we have regulations and we need regulations because as long as there's a market for all kinds of different data manipulation, some companies are going to try to profit from those markets. And um, only regulation in that case will really set some guardrails around what companies can and cannot do. Didn't you tell me that you advocated at the European Union at some point? Yeah, I've spoken twice at the EU Parliament hearings, once around algorithmic discrimination. Um, and I gave specific examples that I had personally um, experienced that I wanted to be sure went on record as the types of experiences that you could expect to have on a regular basis if you were living in North America that I would hope we could legislate so as to avoid having within Europe. And again, just more recently this year for a panel that was on the Beyond Growth Conference talking about different ways to think about how we wanted this algorithmic ecosystem to grow and what we wanted to be legislated in as a part of that ecosystem and how we wanted to try to protect some of the people who are currently contributing to the development of technology and uh, algorithmic systems. And these are the people who are data workers, click workers, people in most cases in very precarious circumstances who are never included in any of the profit uh, making or profit taking from these technological developments and whose, whose presence and whose exploitation, I think most recently an Andreessen Horowitz memo kind of underlined was necessary was a necessary attribute of profitable AI development up until now. So talking about those kinds of abuses, really, in EU Parliament, around policymakers, around activists, around people who are part of the EU AI Act development and trilogue was really important to me because I think that we have a problem in Europe of believing that anything that is innovative and anything that is lucrative is going to help us in the technology sector to catch up with the other big global powers in tech. And I think that that's one thing. It makes perfect sense. It, we should absolutely try to keep Europe as competitive as possible in every economic area. But we should also be aware that we don't want to have a lot of the negative attributes of a laissez-faire technological sector that you have in other parts of the world. You know, I don't yeah. have to living since a decade in, in Germany, I don't have to worry about, you know, my telephone number, my bank account, my credit card, other personally identifiable information being scraped and cloned and used for all manner of scams that I have to be constantly checking my bank and my, you know, credit card accounts and all of my information to see if it might have become compromised because none of the big companies are responsible for that in North America. 
I don't, I don't have these problems. And it's largely because of guardrails that the EU has set up um, that specifically prohibit the sale, the trade, the bartering and brokering of a lot of kinds of personally identifiable information within Europe. And I, I understand that this is just a different system than you have in other parts of the world, but I personally think it's not fair to push the responsibility for monitoring your data at all times to individuals. You know, if, you're, if your photograph is scraped from the web and then used in a database of criminals that's sold to law enforcement at a profit in order to give law enforcement across the United States the ability to feel like they're on top of identifying anybody they want to identify for any purpose, I shouldn't have to personally file a complaint and <laughs> withdraw my photograph if it happened to end up in the database of the company that was scraping pictures from, you know, but that's where they are in North America because no company is responsible for this kind of unlawful um, behavior. The web scrapping and data collection by OpenAI is probably going to be a good example, no? Right now, I think the, the case against OpenAI with regard to copyright you know, that hasn't yet been educated. So we don't know if these companies are ever going to be held responsible for or accountable for scraping copyrighted information that people have either been paid for or hoped to receive payment for from the web. And, and that's a, a huge privacy issue that hopefully we'll be able to avoid through regulation. I think only regulation can really fix that for the future. It's not something that can or should be left to communities to organize and try to fight. Okay, last question. What would you say to minorities who want to transition to tech? And what would you say to the ones who already work in tech? So for people who want to transition into tech, I would say, come one, come all. I mean, it's great. <laughs> it's, it's, it's decades I'm working in the tech industry. And for many, to all intents and purposes, I do think that it is a growth industry and it is an interesting industry and it is one where you can and should be learning all the time and feeling really engaged by your ability to grasp more and more complex ideas and applications and for that reason it's it's one of the better interdisciplinary industries that there is. I think that that's actually what I do say to my students at Fraunhoop and that's what I would say to anyone who's a uh, minoritized person who's considering the tech industry as um, a future option. What I would say, moreover, is that it's as important as it is to recognize the opportunities of the industry, it's important to recognize that you're not alone. I meet far too many people in Berlin who are working in companies or in startups where, you know, they're the only Muslim person or they're the only visibly um, religious person who's wearing the veil or they're the only person who's Black of African descent. And I feel like it's really important for them, for queer people, for anyone who feels as if they might not see any or much representation around them in the industry to recognize they're not alone and to understand that their success is an opportunity. And it's an opportunity to break down stereotypes about what a tech person should look like uh, or where they should come from. And it is just as true as it is that, you know, you have to see role models in order to become, you know, the people that you've seen 
role models representing. In many cases in tech, it's all new. There aren't so many role models as we might like. And so sometimes you have to be that person that you would like to see in front of you and hope that there are going to be people who see you as an example that they can follow. So, you know, the, the whole idea of Frauenlieb is very much in line with opening the door to more non-stereotypical techies, because I think that if we want tech to continue to be a global phenomenon and not be relegated to a kind of elite that has to look a certain way and come from a certain part of the world, um, then we have to actively make ourselves heard, you know, go after increasingly responsible roles in the industry and, you know, open the door for others who look like us or if they don't look exactly like us, who don't look like the stereotypical people who've kind of dominated the industry in the past. You know, there are more people than I can tell you who I've met in Berlin who tell me, you know, I'm incredibly stressed all the time at my job because I'm the only person who represents this identity and either I've heard or I worry that if I make a mistake, if I am too um, unsuccessful at doing whatever it is, no one from my background will ever be hired again. I will effectively, you know, carry the fate of everyone from my background um, in this industry just by virtue of being underrepresented um, at the company I work at. And I think that's incredibly, that's something that stuck with me. People have said that to me on multiple occasions and about their experiences. And I think it's incredibly important to kind of remember that you don't know who is observing you and you don't know where um, your experience is going to have impact. And if it's someone who's in the same country, the same city, or just in the same industry, but somewhere very far away, that's, that's already a lot. That's already a lot. And I, you know, I've certainly taken inspiration from people all over the world. Um, the Joy Bramwinis, the Timnit Gebrus, the Debrajis, all of the people who are working very, very um, diligently against incredible odds and in very non-representative surroundings where, you know, they don't look like anybody around them. Um, and I've taken that kind of inspiration that I hope others can take maybe on a smaller scale, but from me and from everyone like me who doesn't really see themselves represented uh, much in in the industry they're working in. I personally see a lot of performative actions when it comes to inclusion and diversity in companies, starting with their social media posting, but it's not really followed by actual action. What's your take on that? I think diversity is a really um, fraught topic for people who have been underrepresented professionally uh, for most of their careers. So I think that um, you know diversity has really become, especially in the post-2020 fervor after the George Floyd incident, I think it's, it's become this non-conversation where a lot of companies feel like they just need to do the performative thing, find someone who looks slightly different than the majority, stick them in a picture, put them on the website, and their work is done. And what very few of the trainings and the discussions and the learnings and teachings and all of that about diversity show is that diversity is really uncomfortable. And you know that you're doing diversity right when people are 
tentative and people are not sure and people are asking questions about how to represent different subjects amongst their colleagues because they just don't know where their colleagues may be coming from perspective-wise, culture-wise, experience-wise. And I think that the example I always give is beyond the fact that everybody will one day have to deal with age discrimination. So they should be thinking about how they would like to be represented and not leave that in the hands of a technological algorithm. Everybody will eventually have to um, recognize that when they are in truly diverse spaces, they'll have some understanding of what their minority colleagues are going through because they'll feel more tentative and they'll feel more like, mm, maybe I need to listen more closely. I have to bring my A game. I have to really be as succinct and clear and professional as I can be because I don't know what my other colleagues know. Yeah. When you're in an environment where everyone is fairly homogenous, similar background, similar training, similar outlook, you don't need to bring any kind of particular professionalism because you already know what everybody thinks and you pretty much sound like everybody sounds. You don't expect to have much scrutiny on your work or on your performance. So, you know, it's 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 a locker room. It's not it's not a boardroom where you've got to really show your stuff. And and this has been proven time and time again, I think in many cases in startups in uh, North America that have blown up due to just general misbehavior and poor management or no management uh, on the part of these really, really homogenous teams. But definitely, um, I think in terms of what I would like to see, I would like to see more tech companies recognizing amongst their employees that they're building the future, that building the products, the services, the feature sets that we're going to come to rely on, hopefully, as time goes by. If they want to be the next Google, the next Microsoft, the next global behemoth that everybody all over the world, whatever country or city they're in is relying on, then they need to be thinking about what it will be like to use those products and services if they're outside of their comfort zone, if they're outside of you know, their North American or Western Europe, European home. Um, and that is part of the process of understanding and valuing and then being more open to including diverse perspectives, diverse colleagues uh, in your product development, your software development, your testing of software processes. And so when you see that that's not happening and most of what you're getting is a very similar mindset, a very similar set of backgrounds, everybody's grinning at you with the same exact uh, age range, skin tone, you know, educational profile, there's not an understanding of what will really boost you to the next level internationally. Thank you so much for saying that. Like, for real? <laughs> no, no, really? The diversity talks that are uncomfortable and, yeah, and vulnerable like they are, and nobody seems to want to have them. Yeah. Yeah. We have a lot of work to do, those of us who already work in the tech sector. Part of it is responsibility work and inclusion work to ensure that the products that we build and that we push and that we hope will go viral will actually represent the majority of people in the best way um, around the world. But we also have a lot of, um, I think, responsibility to also 
for those of us in the industry to tell it like it is and to inform and kind of develop potential tech workers with the skills that they need to remain in the industry and to be to develop more resilience because that's really something you need in an industry where there is a real tendency to groupthink there's a real tendency to cluster around a particular profile and not really um, consider any profiles uh, that are diverse so there's there's a lot to be done but um, generally speaking I do think that we're up to the task. I'm really impressed by every year, every class of women that graduates from Frauendu. We now are averaging 35, 36 nationalities in each cohort. And it is incredible how much anybody really, um, but especially women, are able to learn even in the face of a society that often tells us we can't, we shouldn't, or we won't be successful. That's one of the things that gets me going every day is the pride and the excitement about seeing how much we can do and how much can change in a very short period of time if we just, you know, work with other people who are maybe marginalized, maybe made to feel uh, underrepresented, but actually, you know, we're talking about global majority communities. And I think we all deserve and should have an active role in the development of technology. Well, very well said. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This was great.